これは世界赤軍構築のためのニュースフィルムである。1970年3月共産主義者同盟赤軍派は日航機をハイジャック国際根拠地設立を目指し朝鮮民主主義人民共和国へ飛翔同じく9月パレスチナ解放人民戦線はカイロでパンアメリカン機を革命飛行場で他の3機をハイジャックの後爆破国際ゲリラの新たな武装闘争を展開した。Ethnic cleansing in Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, followed by another round of genocidal attack on the people of Gaza. The protest against an illegal settlement in Beita, south of Nablus, and the assassination of activist Nizar Bernard by the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and another attempt at ethnic cleansing in the neighborhood of Silwan in East Jerusalem. In the midst of all this, While Gaza was under attack in May, Japan's Vice Minister of Defense, Nakayama Yasuhide, tweeted, Our hearts are with Israel. Followed by an interview where he said, The biggest threats to Japan today are Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Japanese Red Army, a now disbanded leftist urban guerrilla organization from the 1970s. In today's episode, We delve into the context of Nakayama's comments by exploring the histories of Palestinian resistance, Japan Israel relations, and solidarity between Japanese leftists and the Palestinian struggle, starting with the collaboration between the Japanese Red Army and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Shigen of May is also the daughter of Shigen of Sako, who is a former member of the Japanese Red Army. And a political prisoner currently incarcerated in Japan. May herself was born and spent her childhood in a Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon and lived underground with her mother and her comrades as a stateless person until she was granted Japanese citizenship in 2001. May is currently based in Beirut, Lebanon, and since Lebanon is a country underdeveloped by imperialism, The availability of electricity and internet connectivity are very limited. As a result of this, 
As well as May's busy schedule as a journalist, I interviewed her on two separate occasions and combined them into one episode. In the first segment of this interview, recorded in June 24th, we begin our conversation by discussing how her experience growing up in Palestinian refugee camps shaped her views of Israel, US imperialism, and Palestinian human rights, including the right to armed resistance recognized by the United Nations. We critically examine the myth that Israel is a peace loving country surrounded by hostile enemies, that it is the only democracy in the Middle East. Despite the increasing international recognition, to the contrary, that it is a highly militarized, settler colonial, apartheid state that has violently murdered, displaced, and segregated Palestinian people since its creation in 1948, remembered by Palestinians as Al Nakba. In the second segment of this interview, recorded in July 21st, We focus on the history of the relationship between Japan and Israel, beginning in the 1930s, when some officials within the Japanese state, influenced by the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, an anti Semitic text that associates Jewish people with money and other anti Semitic conspiracy theories, sought to settle Jewish refugees fleeing Europe in the territories occupied by Japan. In the belief that they will bring financial support to Japanese imperialism. After World War II, Japan was one of the first countries to recognize Israel and maintained friendly relations with it until the Arab Israeli War of 1973 and the Arab state's oil embargo against Western imperialist countries that supported Israel led to an economic crisis in Japan. This led Japan to take a more cautious approach as a quote unquote neutral party and maintain diplomatic relations with both Israel and the oil supplying Arab states, as well as Iran. However, this changed in 2014 when Japan moved towards rapprochement with Israel, and this led to increased economic, technological, and military cooperation between the two states. Making Japan's claim to neutrality in the so called Israeli Palestine conflict increasingly dubious. We then discuss the history of solidarity between the Japanese left and the Palestinian struggle, starting in the 1970s, when a strategic disagreement within the Red Army faction, not to be confused with the Japanese Red Army and the United Red Army, led Shigenobu Sako. To Lebanon and cooperate with organizers from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. However, after the Lod Airport massacre, in which three members of the Japanese Red Army allegedly opened fire and killed 26 civilians, the subsequent repression forced the Shigenobu family and other members of the JRA underground. We discuss the misconceptions surrounding this incident and the change in the orientation of Japanese solidarity with Palestine towards a more legal and humanitarian direction led by NGOs, as well as the present day social movements such as the BDS movement. We also discuss the international dimension of the Palestinian struggle, 
the accusation of anti-Semitism against pro-Palestinian activists, the media representation of Palestine, and the role of social media in pro-Palestinian activism. Alright, enough of me talking. Here is an Against Japanism podcast interview with Shigenob May. Enjoy. Okay, my name is uh, May Shigenobu. I'm a, a Japanese and Palestinian, somewhat Lebanese mixture. I've lived most of my life in the Middle East, mostly in Lebanon, but uh, I work as a journalist and a political analyst in Middle Eastern issues. And I'm also a producer, a freelance producer for televisions and programs on televisions. And I'm specialized in media and especially the Middle Eastern media. And that's what I studied at the Japanese university, but what I studied earlier in the American university in Lebanon was uh, political science and international relations. In Japan, in Doshisha University, I studied media studies. I did my PhD in media studies, uh, case studying uh, Al Jazeera's uh, effect on uh, uh, the Middle Eastern um, mindset and uh, you know agenda setting and democracy incentives in the populace of the Middle Eastern Arab-speaking audience. And your mother is Shigenobu Sako, who was a member of the Japanese Red Army yeah. and is currently a political prisoner incarcerated in Japan, uh, scheduled to be released uh, May 2020, if I'm correct. Oh, sorry, 22, I had wrong. Uh, yeah. She, yeah. Yeah. And your father was guerrilla fighter for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which the JRA corroborated with in Lebanon during the late 1960s and 1970s. And for listeners who don't know... In the 1970s. Oh, in the 1970s. Okay. Thank you for the mm-hmm. correction. And the uh, 80s, of course. Uh, and the 80s, 70s yeah. and on, I would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for listeners who don't know, the PFLP is still around. Uh, it's one of the resistance organizations resisting Israel aggression in Gaza and other parts of Palestine, along with Hamas. Uh, unlike Hamas, however, uh, the PFLP bases its ideology on the secular principle of Marxism-Leninism and the goal of creating a secular democratic state in Palestine. And May, you yourself grew up in the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon and various Arab countries uh, after you and your mother were forced to flee Lebanon due to the Israeli invasion of the country in 1982, correct? Yes, that's correct. And because of your parents' commitment to the Palestinian liberation, and your mother became a target of Israeli assassination after the Lod Airport incident of May 30, 1972, you were forced to live underground and as a stateless person until you received Japanese citizenship uh, in 2001. And uh, for listeners who are interested, uh, May's uh, life story is documented in two documentaries, uh, Children of the Revolution from 2010, directed by Shane O'Sullivan, 
And the Anabasis of Mei and Fusako Shigenobu Masawa Dachi from 2014 by Eric Baudrillard. So, this experience、uh, growing up in Lebanon and the Arab world at large, how did your childhood and growing up in this environment shape your view of Palestine, Israel, and Zionism? Um, of course, you know, having seen firsthand the effect of Israeli occupation on Palestinian territories and Palestinian state and all the refugees that have lost their land and their properties. And I was among the people who were second or third generation Palestinians who are still hoping to go back because they didn't leave for good when they left. They left. Fearing massacres, and that's the way the Israeli、uh, Haganah and Urgun terrorist、uh, groups were trying to terrorize villages, Palestinian villages, to, to kick them out of their land and their homes. And eventually they were all summoned up and shipped away from Palestine, the whole of historic Palestine. And、uh, some of them internally became refugees, and some others had to come. To other countries like Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and many other Arab countries like Egypt, some of them. So,、uh, as a result, you know firsthand their stories. You hear what happened to them. You hear it's not like you, you were somewhere. It's, it's their true stories of how they were fleeing what happened to them, how they saw. Uh, bodies of the people they knew, or when they're passing across villages, the next village, they would see bodies on the floor, on, on the ground, or how their you know, their grandfather or their fathers were fighting you know, with just very simple hunting guns. And they were attacked by these armed Jewish militia at the time because there was no Israeli state at the time. And、uh, so, even, even the British mandate government called these groups terrorist groups at the time, the Urgun and the Haganah. And so, you know, you hear about these people's personal、uh, stories and how they were kicked out of their land, some of them only wearing their clothes and nothing else. They even didn't manage to bring their own documents. And you have stories like the, the one that、uh, Rassan Kanafani, the famous、uh, writer, wrote in、uh, Going Back to Haifa. He wrote about a story about a child who was left behind because of the panic when the Israelis were kicking people, the Palestinians, out of their homes, and how this child was raised by a Jewish family. And then the family meet after. You know, the Palestinian parents are like,、uh, they want to visit their old home in Haifa. And they find out that their son is,、uh, was raised,、uh, still alive, and raised by this couple, a Jewish couple who was living in their home now. So it's like, it, this is something coming from real stories. It's not a, a fictional, completely fictional story. It's based on so many people's accounts of what happened to them. When they were kicked out of Palestine. So, when you hear all these things, and then you live and you see how the Palestinian refugees have to live, the conditions they had to live in, and、um, 
And then you have the 82 Israeli incursion or invasion of Beirut. And uh, afterwards you hear about the massacres that were committed with the help of the Israeli defense forces or occupying forces, of course. Uh, so you, you know firsthand what's going on there. And then you then when you eventually, you know, become more aware of things, of course, I, I was like naturally with the atmosphere of fighters and activists and my mother and her colleagues and the comrades and her friends, the Palestinian friends. So the atmosphere around me was all about pro-Palestine, the pro-liberation. So it wasn't a strange thing to me to think about all these things for, at a young age. It was almost like a given to think of perhaps maybe becoming a fighter someday. And, uh, you know, even I had that kind of dream of becoming a fidayin. This is what they call the, the freedom fighters of the Palestinians or the solidarity fighting with the Palestinians, solidarity with the Palestinians. They're called fidayin. So uh, many of us youngsters, children in, in the camps or even outside the camps uh, who are Palestinians, always had this dream of maybe becoming the fidayin to fight the Israelis and, you know, take back Palestine. So this was the atmosphere I was growing in at a young age. But the funny thing is you would expect, you know, from Israeli propaganda that the adults are encouraging us to do this. And the adults are always encouraging youngsters to hold arms and all this and fight Israelis and but actually, I can tell you firsthand that it, that was not the case. Every time you mention that you want to become a fedayin, the um, adults around us, of course, they're happy to see that their child is, you know, also passionate about the return to Palestine and their, you know, return of their rights to of return, you know, and all other rights that were taken from them for so long. But they would add and stop us and say and say you know the only way we would fight israel is by really learning and educating ourselves and really achieving a good status that would allow us to be heard around the world and you know we would become doctors it's better for us to become doctors uh, engineers uh, you know even uh, study abroad and work abroad, but that would be better because once Palestine is created, all these brains are necessary and needed to create a, a very good developed state. And these people would have a voice outside of, let's say, Lebanon or the Middle East to perhaps let the world know what's really going on for the Palestinians all these years. So it wasn't the adults that were encouraging us to think this way. It was us looking up to the adults around us, the freedom fighters and the activists. But in reality, they would always encourage their children to, to be educated and to try other means if possible. By the way, and I would mention, of course, here, and uh, you would we, we would have summer camps and camps where children are trained to, to use weapons, but this wasn't at all the kind of, you know, child soldier kind of training. 
it was more like a self-defense training, especially after the massacre of 1982. They felt, the Palestinians felt, because the, in the massacre of 1982 in Sabra and Shatira in Beirut, um, the, the people who were killed, the majority of people who were killed were elderly women and children. Because by that time, by the time the phalanges, the right wing of Lebanon's uh, militia, supported by the Israeli army, entered the camps or they were ready to massacre the Palestinians. The Palestinian fighters and the activists and the politicians had already left for Tunisia with Arafat because they were kicked out of Lebanon by then. So only the vulnerable people will, were allowed to stay in the camps. And those are the elderly women and children. And these people were killed you know, mercilessly. So from there, it was like a norm or it's a necessity for all parents and all activists to, to let their children at least you know how to use a weapon in case they needed to defend themselves or defend their mother or their grandfather or grandmother if something like that ever happens again. So it was a it was that kind of necessity for us to go through, let's say, military training sometimes also. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And um, it clearly takes more than guns to build a nation, right? Like you need doctors, you need like nurses, you need teachers. It also sort of reflects the multifaceted nature of Palestinian resistance. Um, there are various means of campaigning for Palestinian human rights, including the boycott, divest, and sanction movement, which is peaceful means of uh, exerting pressure on Israel. Um, but at the same time, if anything is pushing uh, people to violence, it's, you know, it's the Zionist state. It's Israel that's genocidal and entrenching the apartheid state and facilitating ethnic cleansing. So I totally understand that. You know, people have the right to self-defense. And if I understand correctly, that's when the massacre you mentioned is when the UN, UN passed a resolution affirming the people's right to self-determination, particularly Palestinian right to self-determination and the right to resist by any means necessary, yes. including um, resistance. It's a very important thing to mention that what you mentioned right now yeah. is an extremely important thing to mention because most people forget that there is a right to self-defense and a right to uh, resist if you are occupied. So this is a right that in the, 2000, the years 2000, and I'm not sure, early 2000, the, there was an attempt to... Uh, removing that right because mm. of the Palestinian issue, because it's there and they know that if, as long as it's there, it, it means that Hamas has the right to fight, PFLP has the right to fight, and all Palestinians, if they wish to liberate or fight the settlers, because what you have still now is settler colonialism all over West Bank. It's not like we would we would talk about this maybe later, but uh, you know it's a, the Palestinians are trying their peaceful means. I mean, 
BDS boycott, divest, and uh, sanction. This is this is a movement that started in Palestine by peaceful Palestinians. You have other kinds of resistance. You have people trying to use art as a means of resistance. For, for resistance, for for example, Naji Ali. This is the 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 person who is famous for. I'm not sure if you know this. The Honzula. It's a famous. He's a famous cartoonist. That was eventually assassinated by the Israelis. So, oh, is it a uh, little boy? Yes. Okay, exactly. I think, I, think what you, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes, that boy, that boy in the caricature, his signature is Hanzala. He's always, uh, you always see his back and his hands tied behind mm, yes. his back. Yes. And and he is, and the name Hanzala, Hanzala means very bitter in Arabic. So, he is trying to depict the situation of the Palestinians, the 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 treachery of the Arab states, ignoring of the whatever that is obvious, like what you see today in Gaza. And his cartoons, even though he was killed in, in the eighties, are still very much relatable. They are still very much talking about what's going on today in Palestine and in how the world is reacting to what's going on in Palestine and how the Arab countries are also reacting to what's going on in Palestine. So some people even took the, uh, their their resistance with art, their resistance with, with all sorts of things, like Hassan Kanafani was a famous writer. He was not a militant, but he was also assassinated. And you have so many people who are assassinated, like, you know, you have diplomats that were assassinated in European countries in the early um, 70s and 80s. So it doesn't matter what kind of resistance you are choosing to, to use. It's to them, you're just a nuisance as long as you're resisting. It's so they tried hard to remove the right to resist article from human rights. And you might also add the point that in the general, general assembly, the United Nations almost always sees things from a humanitarian because all states are in the included. So most of the time when things like that happen, they do write resolutions or agree on, on such articles. But as long as if they don't pass the, the Security Council, nothing is forcible. And to add here, Israel has already broken 28 UN United Nations resolutions. So it's not like it cares about the international community or what they think or what they judge. They just, you know, as long as they have the green card from the, the US and they, the US would most often help them with a veto in, in the Security Council, you know, even when Gaza was being hit in this time or all the other previous times, 2008 and 2015, all these years, U.S. has always vehemently stood by Israel with vetoes, prohibiting any kind of resolutions that might enforce things on Israel. So there's only the General Assembly where the world can say what they think and vote with a majority. Almost always it's Puerto Rico and a few countries that are affected or influenced by the U.S. policies that eventually vote as the U.S. does on those resolutions. But mostly it's a, it's a, it's a majority vote. 
of the General Assembly for such matters. And you have like, for example, Iraq was hit and destroyed until today we have a failed state almost because of all that attack. And because they claim that Iraq broke two UN resolutions, you know, and Israel, on the other hand, has broken already 28 resolutions. And instead of punishing uh, Israel to stop it from continuing with these behaviors, we, or the US, rewards it with further funds and military aid. And like, for example, this time when after the, the Israel attack on Israel and the bombardment of Israel, in addition to the $3.8 billion that are provided as aid from American taxpayers' money to Israel in the form of mostly arms. So it's not like, uh, for example, scholarship aid. It's not medical aid. It's not agricultural aid. It's not research aid. It's all military aid. So it's kind of as if America is funding or American taxpayers' money is funding the wars on Palestinians every single time. And then on top of that, you have the foreign minister or the defense minister, I think it was, going visiting uh, the U.S. right after the attack on Gaza and asking for an extra $750 million to replenish the Iron Dome, the, you know, the, the so-called shield for Israel. And here I would like to mention that you know, Israel has two voices that it uses internationally and internally. Internally, again, we have internally meaning towards the Jewish-speaking Jewish Israelis and internally towards the people, the Palestinian people under its occupation. Towards these internally, they always talk of power. They always want to instill fear in the, the Palestinians, and they always want to show the Israeli public that it stands in a very powerful way, uh, position. It's winning. It's uh, under control. It's everything is under control. Hamas is under control. And then when you see what it emits to the outside world, especially the English-speaking world, if you see the spokespersons on TV, the military spokespersons, the politicians, the Twitter accounts, or the Hasbara, of course, all these people are talking about them being in fear and victims and always, you know, under this fear of Hamas attack and terrorist attacks. And that's why they built that huge wall all around the West Bank. And that's why they're always asking for this military aid money. And so they have two languages they use. Towards the international communities, there's always showing themselves as the victim and that they always need the help. And, you know, whatever happens, you know, if you let Israel down, this, this will cause another Holocaust, as if what it's doing is not almost like what they have experienced in the Holocaust. I think it's even, even worse because they're ethnic cleansing, they're dispossessioning Palestinian people's properties and land and everything. It's what the, the Nazis did to them when before and during the World Wars, World War II and World War, or before World War II and after. 
So it's like they are, they were the victims, but they're doing exactly the same thing to the Palestinians, but screaming to the outside world that they're still the victims and they're fearful of having another Holocaust if they don't do this. Of course, internally, they, they always show power. They're always showing that they're in control. They're always, okay, don't worry. So we should pay, pay attention to the kind of language they're using depending on the audience they're talking to. And that's all serving, for example, how the BDS movement, the boycott movement, was attacked and fought in the U.S., in France, in Germany, yeah, you know, Canada all these countries well. in Canada. So now, even though these countries at once, you know, once you think that they're uh, somewhat criticizing Israel, Canada, for example, or France sometimes, but then when it comes to BDS, all of a sudden this is anti-Semitic and somewhat it's illegal to even talk about being boycotting. And now if you are a company that calls for boycotting uh, Israel, you are not allowed to, I don't know, was it to have, uh, you know, you a government uh, funds and anything like that. I mean, this is the kind of double standards that you have where Israel is allowed to do everything. And it's also rewarded with all sorts of support. Whereas other countries, whenever they're, it's inconvenient for the West, it's, it's demolished at, at an instant like Afghanistan, like Iraq, Libya, Syria, all these countries were demolished. Now, you know, you have uh, countries that have way, you know, like 50 years of development gone because of this um, Western-induced wars, in a way. But also, like, it, it does show that the BDS campaign is working, right? In a sense, they're really scared of the effectiveness. Mm. Like, they... The pressure is exerting, and so they have to react, right? They have to suppress. And that's the, that's the reason why they're suppressing it, because it's working, because it is affecting Israeli companies, it is affecting uh, the image, Israeli image. When you, you know, campaign, for example, in Japan, you had the soda stream against the soda stream at, at one time. Some department stores decided to stop selling it. And then now recently you have some supermarkets refusing to sell Israeli settlement-made wine. So, so not Israeli wine, but also settlement-made. Because boycott is also about refusing products that are especially made in settlement areas, which is occupied Palestinian territories. What's happening today, what you see in, for example, is Jerusalem, Sheikh Jarrah, uh, Silwan, or in Nablus, Beiti, uh, in all these areas, this is, we're talking, we're not talking about borders or, you know, skirmishes between two states. No, we're talking about territories that are supposed to be Palestinian, under Palestinian rule. It's East Jerusalem, it is the West Bank, it is the Palestinian Authority territories, but still you have settlements and settlers protected by Israeli soldiers, whatever they do. What do so it, the Palestinians cannot resist these settlers who are very aggressive, you know, come into these people. You can just imagine, you know, when you're sitting home and all of a sudden a group of settlers would just barge into your home, start taking things from your house and decide that half of this house or more 
is theirs. They're going to start living there. So you have not just strangers, but practically enemies just deciding to live there. And you can't kick them out because whatever you do to them, Israeli soldiers would, would immediately either arrest you, kill you, beat you. You know, there is no way you can resist. You just have to sit there and watch and stop them from taking the whole house. What, that's what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah for now. You know, they're, they're trying to, to stop the Israeli settlers from taking the whole house while they've already taken half of their homes. So, so it's impossible to think of this kind of settler colonialism and just sit back and say, okay, it's fine. You know, this is, if you say anything against that, it's anti-Semitism. No, it's not anti-Semitism. This is talking about what's happening that is inhumane. This is number one. Number two, even logically, the Arabs are even Semites. So you can't be, when Arabs are fighting the Israeli occupation or fighting them on the media or whatever events they talk about what's going on, they're also finger-pointed as anti-Semites. But that's a really ridiculous claim because Arabs are Semites also. So, you know, unless you mean anti-Jewish, then that's a different topic. But why would the Jewish people have this special standing in the Semites where Arabs are okay to kill and discriminate against and oppress, whereas the other Semites, the Jews, it's okay for them to fight whatever comes against them with this rhetoric. There are also a lot of uh, non-Zionist Jewish people who support Palestine. Of course, yes. And, and so it's, it's, it's a completely, di- it's mixing up issues in favor of not allowing people to really, you know, international community to really criticize Israel. But, you know, when you say it's anti-Semitic to criticize Israel, you have even the Jewish people saying, no, Israel is an entity that's a political entity and it's not a religious uh, representation. It's not does not represent a lot of the Orthodox Jews that are Naturi uh, Karta, for example. These people, you always find them in demonstrations with the Palestinians. And then you have all the progressive Jews in the US and Europe, where they're also very much against what Israel is doing. And they are very proud Jews. It's not like they're anti-Jew. They're also very proud Jews, but they're against what Israel is representing. They're They don't like this connection between Israel and the Jews because they don't want to be correlated with this kind of political behavior and crime, war crimes. Another myth that they promote is that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, right? Oh, yes. (laughs) Despite all the warmongering and, I mean, it was a hostile endeavor from the beginning against not just Palestinians, but Arab people at large, right? I mean, the, when you say democracy and the only democracy in the world, in the Arab world or in the Middle East, it's it's almost funny, because when you really look into the laws, they have special laws for the Palestinians within occupied territories. They have a military order since sixty seven, and then you also had the mil- military order for the, in, the historical Palestine right after the establishment of Israel. So there are two different sets of laws that apply to Palestinians and to Israelis or to Jewish Israelis, let's call it, because you have today Palestinian Israelis who are both Muslims and Christians. 
and you have Jewish Israelis. So even these people are discriminated against, even though they're Israelis, they're still discriminated against. For example, if you are a Palestinian Israeli, you are, for example, not allowed to, of course, they may not want to, but you're not allowed into the army, into the military or the the obligation uh, military service. Now, At the first glance, you think, of course, obviously, that may be better even for the Arabs and so on. But what entails from this is that if you don't have, you have not given military service, you are taken out of so many government support, for example, welfare, for example, educational or jobs in the government office. So you kind of you're dismissing a whole community from benefiting from the state just because they didn't serve in the military. And who doesn't serve in the military? It's usually the Palestinians, unless you have a few conscientious uh, objectors, uh, Israeli conscientious objectors, but usually it's the Palestinians who don't serve in the in the military, unless if they're Druze, which is a different sect in Islam. So you have this kind of law where, for example, if, if an Israeli citizen is married to a Palestinian, she, he, she is not allowed to have residence to be with her husband. So if a Palestinian person marries a Palestinian Israeli not, uh, citizen, marries a Palestinian from the West Bank or Gaza, they, are, they cannot live together because she's not allowed residence with her has, husband. And so on. So you have many, many, many detailed, small, tiny bits where you have obvious racism, obvious discrimination against Palestinians. And there is no way you can call this democracy in today's standards. Palestine's been occupied for decades, but a home for centuries. This land is generations of my family's memories to play and grow and nurture the symbol of peace. The olive trees guaranteed that our people could eat. Palestine is especially metaphors often used, like the world stood by and watch, right? Um, but it also shows like the divide between imperialist perspectives and sort of establishment uh, status quo perspective and the people, mm. people's solidarity, um, mm. international, the so-called civil society. Um, yes. Pretty much all uh, imperialist superpowers 
not just the US, EU or Canada, but even China and Russia, they all go for the status quo, like kind of sort of like a safe. Yeah, safe option. haven. You know, yeah, yeah kind of like a, they don't want to, they just want to say, oh, like we support the peaceful coexistence, yeah. two-state solution. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really like, it does feel like Palestine's abandoned, you know, uh, by all these power, superpowers and, but people are behind them. Like we saw like unprecedented number of people rallying uh, yes. in Toronto here. Like, we had like tens of thousands of people yes. uh, marching and same, so similar it, in other parts of the world too. So it's really shows the It was amazing. Power. Yeah. Yes. And it's amazing how, how people were united this time, you know, like all over the world, you know, even internally, as I mentioned, you have Palestinian Israeli citizens. So these citizens are usually completely confined and, you know, subordinate in a way because they're fearful for their rights and their life and everything when they're living under Israeli government as Israeli citizens. But this time it was it was something that hasn't been seen in the Palestinian history since the 1930s, which was the even the people, the Palestinian people, the live as Israeli citizens inside historic Palestine, united with the Palestinians under occupied territories, in the occupied territories and the world, of course. And they even did a, a strike, for example, and my friends tell me, for example, in Haifa, some, uh, some cities, you know, you would think, okay, what's, so what if the Palestinians strike, what, how would that harm Israelis? But actually it did really affect the Israeli life because, for example, in, uh, in many cities, the doctors in hospitals, many of them are Palestinians. Some hospitals, the majority are Palestinians. And this, these hospitals, they have patients that are Jewish Israelis, not Pal- they're not limited to Palestinian Isra- Israelis. So, so you have all kinds of sectors that were crippled because of this unifying strike that they did while Gaza was being bombarded. And then you also have around the world, you have all these Arab diaspora. We forget about these people, even in Toronto. I mean, like my friends were sending me videos of amazing crowds everywhere, even in the US, Detroit and everywhere. And you have huge Arab communities there. So these Arab communities who are usually just, you know, dormant, you know, they're living their lives. They don't want to really appear and, you know, be very political and being criticized. And some of them, of course, are vocal, but, you know, most people are just, you know, living their lives and stability and everything. All these people were out in the streets. They were not quiet. They were not sitting at home watching the television. They were out in the streets saying the same thing. So it kind of created this, you know, the availability of information and the the smartphone, you know, the, the way smartphones like are emitting instant images of what's going on. And then you have the media not being able to hide it anymore. And, you know, even the Western communities cannot unsee what it already saw on social media. So the media had to catch up with what's being said on the social media, because usually the media was the one that would round the story always. You know, they would always 
round the story of aggression, round the story of the harm, always using vocabularies. And this is my my domain. So I know, you know, how they use the document, you know, they use specific words to completely shy away from describing what's really going on. They might, they might show you the same image, but the way they describe it, the vocabularies they use, the sentences they structure completely tames the, the news of what you're seeing. But this time, this wasn't going to work because, you know, people are knowing what's going on from other places. It's not like they're only relying on the media for information. And so you had, for the first time, you also had 200 media personnel in the Western, uh, in Western media signing a petition asking for more fair reporting on Palestine, using proper vocabulary, not shying away from criticizing Israel saying everything as it is. And then you had people in Google, imagine Google, Mm -hmm. because Google was also controlling information, by the way. So you had Google had also, I think, 180 something people who are Jews, by the way. Jewish staff in Google were asking for more fair coverage and algorithm for Palestinian coverage on the net for example, because Google has always tampered with information, you know, with through so-called algorithm, but, you know, it's always manufactured algorithm. Anyway, so you have a lot of people who are not just the Arabs who are demanding for fair coverage of Palestine. It's not about covering it fairly. It's about the right for the people to know. It's also a right for the Western communities and Western civilizations to know the truth of what's going on. It's their right also. So you had journalists, for example, that were demanding different kind of coverage. And then you, of course, heard of the how the social media was playing around with information on the social media. They were trying to you know, stop activists from reporting what's going on, you know, closing pages with hundreds of thousands of followers and a lot of information, archival information that's been going on for years. It was shut down as uh, on Facebook, for example, as uh, against Facebook policies and Instagram claiming it was a glitch, but it wasn't really a glitch except for the Palestinian content. Stories and contents were deleted from uh, people's accounts. So you had all sorts of attempts to, to silence. People were shifting. You know, they wouldn't, if your story is gone, others will help you put up your story elsewhere. So there was such a solidarity out there internationally and uh, with the international community and with the diaspora Arab community. It was amazing. I mean, even though there were casualties and, you know, damages and everything, but at least you saw a picture of a real kind of the new kind of solidarity in the world. The kind of solidarity that maybe my mother had wished for, you know, the Mm. pluritarian internationalism and solidarity. Maybe that wasn't achieved in their generation in the way they wanted, but they now, we now see a different kind of solidarity, a popular solidarity, which is even, I think, more effective right now. Are you allowed to visit her, like uh, communicate electronically? or Electronically, no. I cannot send her an email, let's say, directly. But what I do, 
most of the time is send an email to uh, relatives or my aunt or a very close friend who would print out the email and then post it in the and send it as a letter to my mother. And of course, when I am in Japan, I do visit her. And previously, until two years ago, I think, she was only allowed two visits in a month, of wow. course. And I think the prison conditions for a political prisoner in Japan is even worse than Israelis, by the way. Oh, really? I mean, like, oh, yes. I mean, like, if you remember, like, uh, a year ago and two years ago, there was a hunger strike striking against um, solitary confinement, the longest solitary confinement in Israel, because Israel has something called administrative detention. And this administrative detention means that uh, Israel is free to detain people for no legal reasons, just for interrogation and for as long as they wish. So it could be arbitrary. It could be, you know, just punishing people, but there is no legal grounds for this kind of detainment and it could go for years. And so some people were against these kind of thing. And then once they're detained, they're placed, some people are placed in solitary confinement. And so they, people, Palestinian prisoners were going on hunger strikes to protest this kind of treatment. And at the time when they were protesting and they were saying that, I forgot the name of the prisoner, I'm just top of my head. They were demanding that he would be released and treated humanely because he was in solitary confinement for, uh, I think, over 15 years or something like that. So if you consider that, and my mother has been in solitary confinement for 21 years, and she's only allowed visits twice a month, now three times a month, and the visit is like 10 minutes, and not everyone can visit. It's only the family that can visit. So, you know, like it's, uh, it's even though not known, because whenever I tell friends about this kind of condition, they're really surprised because most people think of Japan as a developed country, a very democratic country. They cannot imagine Japan having such cruel, inhumane treatment of human beings in Japan, and I always tell them, you know, maybe if she had killed someone or she was uh, stolen something, maybe she'd been treated much better. She would be, she wouldn't be in solitary confinement. That's for one. So she's a political prisoner. That's why she's been treated in this uh, harsh manner. Mm-hmm. Actually, why you told me about Israeli prisons uh, remind me of migrant detainees in Japan, and they experience similar, like arbitrarily indefinite Mm. administrative detention like they could be detained indefinitely without having any charge or any uh, legal proceedings right so there has been a lot of a struggle and organizing around that recently and um, yeah a lot of like um, Asian like Southeast Asian or African uh, even refugee applicants uh, they have to be detained while their applications have been processed and as you may know Japan only accepts like 0.4 percent yeah. Of all refugee applicants. So yeah. I wouldn't even be surprised if there was some collaboration with Israel, with like technologies around that. I don't want to speculate, but there's some police oh, forces yes. in North America. Israel yeah. has uh, one of the most important uh, spying software developed. For example, one is called Pegasus, if you've heard of it. So 
This is to monitor, they just hack your phone, and they go into your phone and then they can get all sorts of information on your phone, even the encrypted ones. And uh, from there on, they can spy on your every single activity, your camera, your microphone and everything. And this technology has been shared with so many other countries, and I'm sure including Japan. It's, uh, mm. it's a very useful tool of control, state control for any country. And, you know, Israel is known for these kinds of security technologies. It's one of the best countries developing these because of the state funds that the state really gives all kinds of funds for such research. By the way, Gaza's attack, the last recent attack, is uh, the first ever AI-managed warfare. So Israel had uh, integrated all their information from all their military sectors, and they created an AI, created all the targets for Israel to hit in Gaza. So. To me, it's like an experimentation. It's always an experimentation. Israel's war has always been kind of an experimentation plus marketing. So they always experiment their new weapons. They experiment their new systems and their new technologies. And they would market them so that whenever they want to sell this technology, they would show that this has worked for them when they used it. So this Gaza war was an AI induced or managed war and all the targets that were hit in Gaza were AI induced targets. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that had to do with the fact that there is no ground invasion this time? Yes, and they threatened of having a ground invasion the first few days. I think it was a bluff. Uh, so they could have Hamas people, you know, maybe situated in bunkers or tunnels that they would start getting ready for the borderline areas. So they would monitor the movement and then they would hit these areas because, oh, and let me just put a note here. Israel always talks about human shields, that Hamas is always using people as human shields. And this is such a nonsense argument because, A, number one, Gaza is the most densely populated area in the whole of the world. And it has 1.8 million people in that small space. And there's no way there's going to be like a building where you can just have Hamas people in that building living there. That's number one. Number two, it is not an impossible task like we saw in Lebanon, like we saw in Iraq. It's not an impossible task if they wanted to target a single floor of the building instead of demolishing the whole building. And if you look at the way the buildings were demolished, I think this is a new weapon also. It's a new weapon or new technology or new way of attacking because it was an abnormal way of buildings demolishing, being demolished like when you are demolishing buildings, you know, civil engineers try to demolish buildings. It's a kind of a three-dimensional weaponry, I think. And then you have the excuse of human shield. But the, the Israelis are the ones who have the human shield, using the Israelis as human shield. For example, on the borders of Gaza, they have kept settlements for 
Israelis. They don't have to be there, but they left them there so that, you know, whenever there is a war, it's them who will always, and the soldiers will station there inside the settlements. So whenever this is, the soldiers are set, you know, stationed inside settlements, living in people's homes, this is what exactly? This is using these settlers as human shields. And then you have you go to all these important locations, army locations uh, inside the historic Palestine. You have, for example, the um, a military base inside a university. You have the Tel Aviv airport within an American an air base. You have all kinds of military facilities right start, you know in the middle of of civil facilities. And so this is what you call human shield. So if if whenever Hamas thinks of targeting these military facilities, it's going to have to damage something if it's a university or if it's a civil a civilian community or it's a it's a residential area because they have all sorts of military stations in residential areas in universities in all sorts of ah in the in, right next to a mall a shopping mall so who is using human shields when they're purposefully building all these military facilities in in civilian areas Gaza, if you talk about Hamas, they're targeting their homes. You know, they're human beings. They're going to have homes. They're not going to have a special building for Hamas. They're going to just live in as anyone else lives in a residential area. So they claim that Hamas is using their community as human shield just because they live in normal places. Whereas they, the Israelis actually build military facilities smack in the middle of residential areas, universities, next to hospitals, next to a shopping mall. This is more of a strategy using human shields. It's people as human shields to me. Now, I like to shift the focus to the relationship between Japan and Israel. In the midst of the recent attack on Gaza by Israel in May 2021, an official in the Japanese government, Vice Minister of Defense, Nakayama Yasuhide tweeted, quote, Our hearts are with Israel, unquote. What is the context of this tweet? Do you think this is a new development and an aberration from an otherwise reasonable policy towards the so-called Israeli-Palestine conflict, or an expression of the status quo that Japan has always been pursuing in the Middle East? Can you tell us about the history of this relationship between the two states? Well, Japan has had a more cooperation-leaning policy with Israel since 2014. It has a long history we, we might want to go into in, in a later stage. But in 2014, Japan and Israel upgraded their uh, relationships with a series of uh, economic and political agreements. And some of these included, for example, uh, agreements on dialogue and cooperation in, uh, and it was the first bilateral investment in security and cybersecurity, which is one of the problems today with Pegasus when the Israel security equals sometimes spying and cybersecurity. And so they have this kind of special upgraded special relationship since 2014 with the ultra-right-wing government in Japan. And I think this tweet is a reflection of this government's 
sense. But in addition to that, I mean, Nakaya Mayasihide is also heard on an interview saying that Japan's utmost danger right now is Hamas and the Japanese Red Army. So for a Japanese minister to think that Hamas oh, and Hezbollah, that Hamas and Hezbollah is the utmost danger for Japan is somewhat awkward if you know if you understand Japanese foreign policy and given this the, this kind of neutral uh, stance Japan is portraying at least in the foreign relationships with especially the Middle East. So I think it's a it's a, an ultra right wing in the government that is trying to portray this kind of relationship with Israel to the extent to sh- of showing that the sa- we have even the same enemies between them. But in general, Japan has had a history of supporting Israel for even before the creation of Israel. So, for example, the imperial government of Japan was kind of encouraged by some Japanese uh, military faction in the 1930s with a person who claims to be a Jewish expert to invest in Jewish settlers and in Jewish refugees and bring as many refugees, you know, escaping the Nazi occupation of Europe and the Jewish Holocaust or before the Holocaust, the discrimination. So for you know to help all these Jews who are escaping the the Nazis in Europe to come through the Soviet Union into the Japanese empires occupied Manchuria and Shanghai and even Kobe to allow them to settle in these regions and the reason behind this was rather odd re- reasoning because one one or two officers uh, serving in the Japanese imperial government had stumbled on the the protocols of the elders of Zion, the book that was prohibited in the Soviet Union. That's where it came out in the first place, but was translated in many other countries. And this book indicated to the Japanese that we should not have the Jews as our enemy, but to we have to utilize their wealth and their powers and their and we want to be in their plans. We don't want them to be against us. So they kind of uh, thought that if we have the Jews on our side, they would be financing us and, you know, especially the rich Jews, because that's what the protocols of the elders of Zion says, that the Jews are rich and that they will be controlling governments and supporting governments, whereas they may also destroy states and governments according to their interests. So they wanted to have this Jewish community on their side, especially in investing in their, of course, expansionist, colonialist ideas, of course, of China and and Southeast Asia. Uh, So from there, this interest in Jewish uh, Judaism started in Japan. And it even went to a level of convincing the foreign ministry of the Jewish community's importance in all countries of the world. And the foreign ministry even gave a memorandum to all the ambassadors and consulates uh, around the world to always put give a report on the Jewish community in the countries they serve. 
So that's the extent of which they thought the Jewish community was important. And this is in the, we're talking about the 30s. But, you know, their plan of having the Jews on their side and, you know, settling all many thousands of Jewish people in Japanese imperialist occupied territories, this didn't go through because the Japanese um, fascist government had a treaty with uh, the Nazis and the Italian fascist government, if you remember. So because they had signed this treaty in 1940, and of course they signed the treaty with the Russians, non-aggression treaty, so they couldn't smuggle the settlers through Russia anymore, not easily at least. So this plan stopped somehow in, in this stage. But in Later stages, when Israel announced their statehood after the Nakba and after occupying most of uh, Palestine or half Palestine at the time, then Japan was one of the first countries to recognize Israel as a country and to start having relationship with the country. It was, I think, in 1952. And from then on, Japan and Israel had had somewhat of a good relationship. But if you remember the oil embargo after or during 1973 war between some Arab states and Israel, the U.S. had supported Israel with extra arms and some countries were you know, not helping in condemning Israel in the United Nations, etc. So 12 oil exporting countries, the OAPEC, the oil, the Arab countries mostly, they decided to put an embargo on the oil sales, especially on the countries that were supporting Israel and not condemning it. And Japan was hit quite hard with this oil embargo. And I think it learned a lesson of not just following in the American footsteps in foreign policy and not just giving one side its friendly face. And I think Japan halted or kind of put a break on this Japan-Israel relationship after the embargo. And that's where you see Japan investing or trying to have maintain better relationship with Arab countries and Iran after the oil embargo because it hit Japan's economy quite hard. But this made a whole U-turn again, as I mentioned in the beginning, in, 19, in 2014, when... Oh, and before that, actually, Japan had suggested a kind of peace between Japan, uh, Israel, and Palestine in 2006. I think it was called Corridor for Peace and Prosperity, which was kind of to encourage peace and prosperity between Palestine and Israel. But it was more of a diplomatic move, didn't progress a lot in the in the actual um, peace creation. So... This was the significant, I think, place where Japan actually tried to be a mediator in the Middle Eastern issue. But now it's more, you know, with the Japanese uh, after Abe leaning quite extremely to the right and now with uh, Soga. So you have a more obvious alliance between Japan and Israel in many domains, but uh, especially in the security and cybersecurity investment and technology, I think. The recent reproachment with Israel, it does show that the claim to neutrality is dubious at best. Yes, it is. And 
In 2015, Abe visited Israel with an entourage of business leaders.、Mm-hmm. And、um, Abe and then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu they held a press conference.、Mm-hmm. Interestingly, Netanyahu said at this press conference And Prime Minister, we have something else in common. We are two peace loving democracies that face formidable threats. From nearby rogue states. Both、uh, Iran and North Korea are governed by ruthless and extreme dictatorships, states that seek to bully and intimidate their neighbors.、Uh, what do you think about、uh, this, this comment? Well, I mean, it's,、uh, it's up to the states and their heads of states to make such statements, but、uh, It's just their spin of the regional politics, of course. And、uh, Netanyahu, as you might know, has always, always been a good PR person for Israel's aggressions and Israel's occupation and Israel's internal aggressions, also. Because it's not just Netanyahu, but it's always the case that Israel has a PR policy internally. Different from a PR policy externally in the English language. So, this is kind of trying to create this brotherhood of democratic countries who are threatened by a rogue state, as you said, implying North Korea, I guess, in the case of Japan, and you know, how they have to cooperate in all sorts of ways,、uh, including. What I mentioned earlier, the security and the cybersecurity and all the security technologies that Israel likes to create. It's quite, you know, Israel is quite pioneering in this domain. So, and Japan is quite pioneering in, in general in computing and、uh, robotics and all that. So, it, it's a convenient kind of cooperation, I guess. But At the same time, this, since 2014, as, and as you mentioned, when he, Abe took with him a, a team of all sorts of businesses and everything that could have cooperation with Israel. So that was a beginning. That was the real beginning of a better quote unquote or a real relationship with Israel. And、um, I think it won't stop at this point. You know, it's,、uh, it's ongoing. It's just that this time it took another phase. And it,、uh, it showed itself more obviously to the public. But the cooperation has been ongoing, except that Japan didn't want to be very vocal about it because of the relationship with the Arab countries. Yeah. So in 2020 alone, there has been、uh, $1.1 billion、uh, invested by Japan and Israel,、uh, 11.1% of overall foreign capital entering the country. In contrast to 2016, when that number was only、uh, 1.8%. So it was a quite significant jump. There's a lot of money involved. And even between August 2020 and June of this year, 2021, Japanese investors invested $2 billion、mm-hmm. in 42 Israeli high tech companies. So there's a lot of money. Coming in, sort of the exact opposite of what should be happening, right?、Uh, civil society and other social movement organizations that support Palestine are calling for boycott, divestment, and sanction, but they're、yes. increasingly financially supporting、uh, Israel. 
And as you say, this is a lot of technology and also some agriculture and energy, but also defense. And、uh, Japan and Israel ministries of defense also signed MOU, a、mm-hmm. memorandum of understanding. So there's definitely like a military aspect to, to this as well. Yes, there is definitely. I mean, the, the, the sheer you know, amount of this investment in high tech, for example, this $1.1 billion of, of inv- Japanese investment in Israeli high tech, this is, you know, it's all going ahead towards high tech, but not something that would serve society, but it's more high tech in security, in surveillance. And this is the kind of high tech they're talking about. And、um, I'm sure there are other kinds of things they're investing in agriculture and all that. But I mean, if you really wanted to show that you are somewhat standing in the middle, I'm talking about Japan, Japanese government, you would at least try to think of a way to invest also in the Arab countries, in Palestinian territories, and all that. But in this case, you know, it was not just government investment, but it was also government funded private investment in the Israeli startups and companies and all that. So, yeah, there is a kind of a clear support and clear intention of further cooperation and upgrading of relationship with Israel in terms of the Japanese government that we have today. Now, Today, Israel is a state and Japan cannot be an expansionist overtly. But you know that imperialism today does not have to take the form of physical military occupation like Israeli is doing. I'm thinking maybe Israel is one of the last places where there is an actual military. Of course, there are other places, but there are actually military occupation. But Japan is not going to be able to do that. But today's kind of expansionism is more economic and more control and political power. And that's where we should be paying attention, I guess, because we're not going to find new occupations as bluntly as we used to see in the 30s and 20s and 40s today. Indeed. While Israel and Japan are both considered as part of the Western imperialist bloc, so to speak, And their relationship is bilateral between two more or less equal partners. Japan's support for Israel is consistent with its neocolonial policy abroad and its support for oppressive regimes like Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines and the military junta in Myanmar. By collaborating with and investing in Israel, Japan is directly supporting the colonization of Palestine. And the genocide against the Palestinian people. Now, as we discussed previously, the progressive people of the world who recognize the humanity of Palestinians and support their struggle for liberation are often called anti Semitic and even criminalized by Western governments allied with Israel for publicly expressing support for Palestine. When I was in university and participated in protest actions for Palestine, I always saw a group of Zionist students counter protesting and confronting pro Palestinian students, calling them terrorists, Hamas sympathizers, etc. One of the student groups I worked with, Students for Palestinian Human Rights, 
was de-ratified by the student government influenced by Zionist lobby. These instances show the global nature of this struggle and how not only Zionist embassies and lobbyists but Western politicians, media, and educational institutions are complicit in the violence against Palestinians. If I understand correctly, you had a similar experience back in the early 2000s when you just returned to Japan. Can you tell us about this experience? Well, when I first, I first returned to Japan in 2001, I was invited, to, not you know, a few months later, I was invited by a school teacher to talk about the Palestinian cause to elementary school class children. So I think they were sixth grade or fifth grade or something about that range. And I was asked to give them a cooking lesson after class. So to make my class enjoyable or because if someone just keeps talking to them, they won't really understand or focus on the conversation that long. So, you know, talking to kids is different from giving a lecture at university or giving a talk in an event. So I, you know, I included some pictures, you know, slides of kids in Palestine, what they do in usual life, plus what happens when they're out in the streets and the stone throwing part. And of course, the other cultural parts like the Palestinian food and why how we use rice in dessert as much as Japanese might not imagine using rice in a dessert, but we use it in a pudding, rice milk pudding. So, you know, try to make the story about Palestine a little bit understandable to the kids of that age. But what happened was that even before this talk with the kids or conversation with the kids, I had given a series of talks in universities and a few media people like journalists were following me and taking pictures of those lectures. And one of the one of the magazines uh, put an article this was before the school talk put an article about me giving a talk to university students and you know a picture of me with one of the slide pictures if you remember the the child who was throwing a stone at a, an israeli tank it's a famous picture so i was giving i was talking about this as well how palestinians you know, resist even, you know, while going to school, coming back from school. No child have to go through this, you know. Usually children should, should enjoy life, should be playing in this park or playing games with each other, not thinking about tanks and army and being apprehended or beaten or all this. This is what Palestinian kids go through or seeing their parents being dragged out of their homes in the middle of the night, or being thrown out of their homes and, you know, their homes demolished just in front of their eyes. These are things usually kids don't go through. So I I didn't exactly say these things because these would be a little bit too harsh for kids. But I spoke about a few things, including what the dreams the Palestinian kids would dream of and and what a usual Japanese kid would dream of. Anyway, so at the end of the talk, we did this cooking lesson. I made paklube, the famous Palestinian dish. And uh, 
it all went very well. Even the parents were attending, they enjoyed it, and they were also waiting for their kids to make the food and so they could taste the food, and everything went well. All of a sudden, like a few weeks later, we hear that this teacher who invited me was being suspended or under probation because the parents of those kids had made claim against the school because they allowed a terrorist to give a lecture at school and teach their kids about terrorism. So this was the first news that went out. And then a little later, we find that the Israeli embassy uh, starts to claim the same thing. In later stages, we find that actually it wasn't that the parents were claiming against the school. The claim at first was that a parent went to an Israeli embassy, a Japanese parent went to the Israeli embassy complaining about this lecture. But this is not a normal thing. A Japanese parent wouldn't be like encouraged to go to an embassy just to complain about a lecture that was given in their, in their school. It later turned out that this was a whole story made up by the Israeli embassy to try and discourage others from inviting me to give lectures in schools and universities. So that, because you might know that the Japanese academic societies and communities in general are fearful of having to be in the limelight in a negative way. So if you have something like this being in the, in the news and coverage and you don't want the hassle, so you would think twice before inviting such a person again. So this was their, their aim from creating this kind of situation. However, at this time, I was uh, already in Lebanon. I was traveling to Lebanon, and then this happened. Uh, however, my friends uh, told me later that um, while I was in Lebanon, a lot of friends and supporters had collected signs and they wrote a statement signed by various artists, lawyers, academics, opinion leaders, all sorts of people. It was a statement against the Israeli embassy and the Israeli government saying that Meishi Genobu is a Japanese national and the Israeli embassy has no right to try to shut up May from giving a talk or from saying, you know, she has the freedom of expression in Japan. So this, this kind of statement was sent to the embassy three times, by the way. Two of these times, the Israeli embassy tried to return the mail, claiming it's a wrong address. The third time, a lawyer took it by hand and gave it to the, the security outside and told them, this is, you're not allowed to claim wrong address because that's also against the law. If you have the right address, you have to receive it. And she gave it to them. But this was the episode in the start of my entry in Japan. And this was an attempt by Israel to shut me up and also discourage others from inviting me to give talks in Japan. That's an amazing show of solidarity from your supporters and people who recognize the, the humanity of Palestinian people. And yes, and they also saw that uh, Israel is trying to enforce their aggression even abroad to people who are speaking against Israel. 
And so this is something that Israel does always. And today we see it in a different form. Of course, we see it in the same form still in American universities when people like Leila Khaled is, was about to give a talk. The Zoom lecture was canceled and even Zoom canceled the whole link for the lecture. And you have other incidents where, you know, uh, Israeli lobby works with the Jewish or Israeli students in the university to try to sabotage certain pro-Palestinian talks and events. This is something that's been going on all the time. But what's recently starting to happen with the internet age is that you have now an army of internet trolls. And, you know, they're the Hasbara, if you want this. It's a Jewish word of meaning explaining. You have either the Hasbara or the trolls in the media or in social media or on the internet, trying to either harass people who are pro-Palestine or speaking against Israel, or exerting and enforcing and their opinion in the mainstream media. Even if you have a Palestinian guest, you know, you have this backdoor influence with the media itself, as well as the talking head that gives the Hasbara explanation of the Israeli aggressions that are occurring all the time in several incidents that need a news coverage. So this is an ongoing thing. It just takes different forms. You know, uh, it's either a harassment to the person himself or herself or at an event, or if it's, uh, it's on the media or it's now on the social media and an article that's been written somewhere was immediately replied in an op-ed by some pro-Israeli national who is always, you know, slamming at that article who was pro-Palestine or anti-Israeli policy. And always they equate these pro-Palestinian movements as anti-Semitic. So, yeah. And you mentioned a little earlier about how Japan is supporting Israel in the financial part when they invest in Israel. It's true. But on the other side, or on the other hand, Japanese activists and politically conscious Japanese are also actively boycotting Israeli products and also becoming vocal against Israeli products in Japan. Yeah, let's talk about the history of this solidarity between people in Japan and Palestinian people. This goes back, as far as I know, as far back as your mother's time, right, in the 60s and 70s. Can you tell us about the history of this relationship? Okay. Um, first, um, I should say that a lot of Japanese people in the 60s, there was a lot of, or let's say in the 50s, maybe even outside Japan, it's not much known, but Japan was quite leaning towards the Communist Party in Japan in the 50s because during the war, it was only the Communist Party that was uh, against. Japanese occupation of uh, Asian territories and expansion. In the 60s, you had this leftist movement that was also succeeding in mobilizing the, the public and trying to pass a lot of laws that would help the laborers and all this. But then in this, uh, this, this end of the 60s was the time where, you know, in France, you had the May Revolution, and in Japan, you had the anti-AMPO 
which was against the, the U.S.-Japan Security Pact. So they were against this re-signing of, it's a 10-year contract or pact, so they were going to sign it on, in 1970. So they were against signing it in 1970. So the student movement escalated in 1969. So at the time, it was more focused about local issues. But again, when the U.S. was involved in, um, in occupying Vietnam, the student movement in Japan also started to focus on being against the, the occupation of Vietnam. So they would, for example, sabotage U.S. tanks that were maneuvering freely in the streets of Tokyo, for example, or, for example, help some U.S. soldiers who were against going to Vietnam War. So they would hide them and give them protection. This was called the Beheren. So you had this was a first move towards expanding this leftist movement into more regional or more internationalistic ideas. But still, you know, even though they were communist and they believed in internationalism and everything related to this world proletariat revolution, there wasn't a practical way of really cooperating with the international revolution, except when part of the Red Army faction, this is before the Japanese Red Army, the Red Army faction hijacked an airplane, Japanese airline, and went to North Korea. And this was an attempt to start a cooperation with the revolutionary government in North Korea at the time. So at this time, also, a lot of the leadership in Red Army faction, we should really always focus that the Red Army faction is not the same as the Japanese Red Army. So Red Army faction, this is for your listeners, because it's always in the Japanese media, almost always mixed up what mm-hmm. the Japanese Army uh, Red Army did and what the Red Army faction did and what the United Red Army did. So these are three different entities. So end of 60s, saw a kind of fractions coming uh, or factions coming out of the uh, Red Army faction coming in like youth uniting and creating something called the Red, uh, United Red Army and a leadership were being arrested because of, of their military uh, operations like stealing banks and attacking police stations to take arms. So in this period, you had a kind of junior level leadership at last because their main leaders had either gone to North Korea or been arrested. And the main leader was also arrested. And at this time, you had divisions between people who were with continuing with this kind of what they called armed struggle, but it was more like attacking banks and stealing weapons from police stations. And you had my mother, it seems, that was not really much happy with this direction that the Red Army faction had taken at the time. And a lot of the Red Army faction members in the Kansai area were also against. So it seems this had encouraged her to go to Kansai area to be introduced there to other kinds of leftist movements there. Part of them is the partisan movement. And she was also introduced to an Arabist 
journalist, later on becoming academic, called Azma Shohe. And this person tried to explain to my mother about the Palestinian cause. Because at this time, my mother was head of International Relations Bureau in the Red Army faction. So she was thinking of ways of really developing her department or her part of her responsibility. And that's why she was interested in knowing about revolutions around the world, what's going on in the voice of the people who are learned in the matter. And that's where, you know, she became more interested about the Palestinian cause. And this is why she decided with, along with another leader in the partisan movement, to actually go there and to learn and to cooperate with the fight in the Middle East with the Palestinians. So she didn't go to Palestine. She went to Lebanon because it was not going to be possible to meet Palestinian revolutionaries inside Palestine, because most of them were operating in Lebanon and Jordan. And that's where she met a lot of the leftist political party leaders, the PFLP, People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine. And uh, she started to you know, try to communicate with them their theological ideas and what the Palestinians are thinking about, how their revolutions as leftists, how they, they think of accomplishing a revolution, combining anti-occupation with leftist revolution. And what came out of this encounter was a cooperation in the PR level which was trying to inform more Japanese people about the Palestinian cause. And that's why my mother started to work with the famous Palestinian writer who was later assassinated by Israel, Ghassan Kanafani, to work with him in Al-Hadaf magazine office and gather information uh, right back to Japan in the form of letters or articles or pamphlets about the Palestinians and what's going on actually. And we didn't have internet at the time. So that was the only way of really communicating between and informing your friends and colleagues and comrades back in Japan. And so this is what they, she started to do. And at the same time, she was calling for a lot of volunteers to come and join them in Lebanon because there was a lot to cooperate with Palestinians in terms of medical help or cultural or military. Of course, some people chose to come and train with the Palestinians, but others chose to come and open clinics in the Palestinian camps, uh, nurses and acupuncture doctors and other kinds of doctors. And some other people came to kind of create a, a cultural link with the Palestinians, like the Red Tent Theatre, they create several theater plays with the Palestinians when they were here. And so you have this kind of cooperation going on. But uh, what became famous about these Japanese who came to, to this region was the operation in the Lid airport. Because this was what became news at the time. Again, if we had social media, we would have been able to hear more about what was going on at the time, but only the 
the big news made it to history. That's why we only know about these things. And uh, so, yes, this lid operation, which is unfortunately it's taken as a given that uh, this was just a crazy Japanese terrorist who came to the airport and shot everyone and killed themselves. This is the narrative that's been being passed on in history because of the lack of sources. But if you go back to the articles and the coverage of the event at the time, you will see that this was not a given for what happened in the incident. First of all, there was a lot of inquiry about how these people who were killed in the airport were killed, actually. There was a, even an international inquiry committee that was demanding that it enters Israel to see and to check and investigate about this incident, because even at that time, it wouldn't be very difficult forensically to discover whose bullet actually killed or injured people. Even at that time, it wasn't difficult to distinguish between a, a bullet coming out of their M16 or the a Czech uh, weapon or Kalashnikov. So, you know, th this was not allowed for the international inquiry to come in and investigate. Like, if you remember Gaza, when the Gaza flutella was attacked by the Israelis in international waters, do you remember this incident? Mm -hmm. Again, at the time, the international community demanded international inquiry to happen, to, to investigate what happened. But Israel declined any kind of international, quote-unquote, intervention. And they had their own Israeli inquiry, which deduced at the end that it was in Israeli national waters, not responding to security calls, etc., and that they had to kill all these people. Anyway, so it's the, the same thing, kind of thing happened. You know, international community demands an international inquiry. Israel refuses it and decides to come out with their own conclusions that supports their, of course, story. And this is why we only have this story all over the, the internet and all over the media. And every time Japanese Red Army is mentioned, this is what's mentioned with it, that, you know, these three people came they shot people in the airport, 27 people died, 70-something injured, but that's it. But you don't see the part that this could have been a crossfire because the Israeli security panicked at the time and they shot at everyone because they had no, they didn't really know who exactly to shoot, how exactly to shoot. You know, we have people all over the place. Plus... At the time, it wasn't really an open information, but it's, it later became obvious that it was um, targeting a certain uh, Israeli head of biological weapon, uh, Professor Aaron Katir, in the operation. And uh, the operation itself, at, later on, I hear from people that it had three parts to the operation. And it wasn't necessarily only to assassinate this biological weapon professor, but it was also three parts. First, there was a team that was going to come and occupy the tower inside the airport from inside the 48 territories, historic Palestine, now Israel. And you had another team who was going to 
also occupy a bus that was transporting passengers. And the third team was the Japanese team who were supposed to assassinate this person. But since there was an earlier arrest of one of the teams by Israelis, so Wadiya Haddad, who had planned this operation at the time, was worried that the whole operation might have been exposed to the Israelis. But he still went ahead with this part of the operation, which was the assassination of Aaron Katsir. So yes, this detail you don't see in the in the media, but you just see the the part that is, you know, always blood in the airport being swiped, and is what you see. Anyway, and this is how the Japanese involvement or cooperation, solidarity with the Palestinians came to the public or to the world. Until then, it was not necessarily something known. And also, until then, for example, even the people who were doing the operation, they intended to kill themselves with a hand grenade by placing it on their mouth, closing, you know, holding it with both hands. This was to erase any traces of their identity because at the time there was no DNA. There was just fingerprints and tooth marks. So these were the only ways of identifying a person at the time. That's why they wanted to erase that. So yeah, this was because they wanted to not show the Israelis that there were Japanese among the PFLP members that were supporting the PFLP. Uh, because there's another tiny information here is that uh, there was no such thing as a real Japanese Red Army party at the time. There were a few Japanese coming for volunteering with the PFLP. But after this operation, when the Israeli media started to say that this person who was arrested, uh, Kozo Okamoto was arrested among the three people, the other two had killed themselves, but Kozo Okamoto was arrested. And so he, in the interrogation, mentioned that he was from the Red Army. Not the Japanese Red Army, but Red Army. And he also said, we are from the Arab Red Army or Red Army or something like this. So eventually, because he's Japanese, the media started to you know, say that he's a Japanese Red Army, claiming he's a Japanese Red Army. And this is where the, the real naming came out at first. And even the PFLP in the first instant after the operation, you will see that the PFLP had given statements about the operation, the reasoning, etc. but as a PFLP operation. But then after the media started to mention something about Japanese Red Army, they started to say in their second or third statement that it, it was in cooperation with the Japanese Red Army as a response to what the media had said, because they wanted to protect Kozo from further torture in case the Israelis thought that he was lying to them about this Japanese Red Army thing. And so this is how actually this Japanese Red Army titling started to come more as an entity. And this was the time where my mother had to go from, you know, publicly supporting Palestine and going to the camps and also having normal relationship with the Japanese embassy staff 
to suddenly having to go underground and hiding because Israelis might retaliate and come and assassinate any person who might be involved, especially if they're Japanese with the PFLP. And uh, actually, Ghassan Kanafani was assassinated for this exact reason, this lid operation, because he was the spokesman after the lid operation, him and Bassam Abu Sharif. Bassam Abu Sharif was targeted with a letter bomb, and Ghassan Kanafani was assassinated with his niece, uh, same year. So yeah, this is uh, how this Japanese Red Army solidarity started to become visible, at least in the world. But it continued in the same path as it did before. That's in terms of spreading the news about the Palestinian cause, calling on medical and cultural and all sorts of cooperation with the Palestinians. And until a time where the Japanese Red Army decided to stop the military actions outside of Palestine, i.e. it was the PFLP also that decided that doing military operations outside of Palestine for the liberation of Palestine might be not producing the right results that they were hoping for, because at first they were hoping for a world attention whenever they hijack or hijack a plane or do something like that. It was the purpose. The main purpose was never to injure people or harm people. The main purpose was to attract the attention of the world media. And when you do something like that, obviously world media comes to the uh, spokesperson of the operation and then they would give a statement where they will talk about the Palestinian conditions and the situation about the occupation of Israel, etc. That was the purpose at the time, but then PFLP and the Japanese Red Army changed course and started to focus on other routes. The PFLP started to focus on working on its grassroots inside Palestine. The Japanese Red Army started to focus on also grassroots inside Japan. Another thing that is also significant about the history of Japan and the Palestinian cause is that also on another scale or another level, there was a tension towards Palestine and, well, not necessarily Palestine at the beginning, at the Israeli kibbutz by the Japanese. Because, you know, Japanese, or not just the Japanese, the the Israelis used to call their Jewish kibbutz as the utopia of socialism because there is no ownership of property or anything. And you you share everything, you work for everyone, you get what you you need and you give what you can. So this utopia was something that uh, the Japanese, some Japanese leftists were interested in and visited the Israeli kibbutz in the beginning because of their interest in this part of the ideology. But you have famous photographers like Hirokawa Ryuchi, who was initially volunteering at the kibbutz, but then gradually found out through his leftist, ultra-leftist Jewish friends in the kibbutz that because he saw some kind of ruins outside the kibbutz and he asked about these and no one would answer him. And then one day this 
a friend of his shows him a map where it showed that these, what he thought were ruins, were actually Palestinian homes that were deserted not too long ago, like less than two decades ago, because the Israeli military had forced them out of their homes. And that's where he started to wonder if it's actually a utopia when you're when this kibbutz is located over land and homes and territories that was taken away from another people. And so he switched completely from being a very you know pro-Jewish, pro-kibbutz person to a, a very much a pro-Palestine uh, photographer and video uh, journalist. Yeah, so yeah, so you have this other side of the solidarity with Palestine. How did this solidarity between Japanese people and the Palestinian struggle change over time since the JRA and PFLP collaboration? What other forms of solidarity with and support for Palestine are there currently? First of all, you have this uh, kind of kind of visible silence between Japan and Palestine, except for the underground solidarity first in the 80s between Palestine and Japan. And what it was is like, you have all these, if you want, leftists and people who were actually still communicating with the Japanese Red Army, my mother, through letters and all this, they couldn't actually be, you know, openly because they they didn't want to be related to the Japanese Red Army as such. They just wanted to actually know more about Palestine and perhaps learn more about it and go and help or write about it or whatever. So you had a period of this kind of silent cooperation or silent solidarity where it was more about communications and information gathering and all this. But then at the end of the 80s, I think it was 18, uh, 1986 until 1992, you first had the children's campaign. It's a Japanese uh, NGO that helps children, uh, refugee uh, Palestinians in their camps, uh, it helps uh, children with some sort of disability, like blindness or something like this. And a few people were involved in creating this NGO, like the photographer I just mentioned, uh, Hirokawa Ryuchi, and also Itagaki Sensei, Itagaki, Professor Itagaki, who was an Arabist or very much uh, informed about the Palestinian cause. And you had also people like Tanaka Yoshiko. Yeah, you had these kind of people who were now trying to create something more practical to create this support and solidarity with the Palestinians, not just, you know, individually visiting, but secretly communicating with the Japanese Red Army to get, let's say, their take about what the, what's going on or what's, something like this. So now you had an NGO that was independently trying to help the, the Palestinians. And then you had other NGOs like the Japanese uh, Volunteer Center, uh, which is JVC, Uh, it, it helped the uh, Palestinians in many medical uh, situations and also like in, involved in women empowerment 
you have, for example, in Japanese, it is called, I think it is JPMA. It's a medical kind of support. So they had a, a lot of clinics or at least two medics stationed in either refugee camps or inside occupied Palestine, like in Gaza and the West Bank. And they would sh- take shifts. So you would have a nurse and a doctor in shifts going there and helping them. But it's unfortunately stopped. I have friends who were used to, who used to work for this NGO. So they would stop from their work in Japan for a while, let's say six months or three months, and they go and volunteer in Palestine or in the camps in other Arab countries. And then you have JICA, which is not just for Palestine, but now or, or has started to really focus on helping the Palestinians in their work. Also in the 1980s, along with the children's campaign NGO, you had uh, something called the Children's Ad- Adoption Group. It wasn't an NGO exactly, but it was a kind of support group that were in 1984, trying to adopt children, but not really physically adopt them, but, you know, try to cover the costs for at least one child for their education or for their health. So people would, you know, become a member and while becoming a member, they would pay a yearly fee. They could pay more, but they would pay a yearly fee to support a child or two or how many ever they can afford. So this kind of support was also, and it's, I think, still going on, this one, this NGO or this movement. And you have also, you know, the international solidarity movement where they used to send human shields to the occupied Palestine to help the Palestinians, for example, harvest their crops uh, because the settlers would come and shoot at them or harass them or the army would come or at checkpoints because the Palestinians, if they were not watched by journalists or foreigners, they would be treated horribly. So this ISM was an international movement where they would send people to volunteer to be with the Palestinians in these sensitive areas to observe and not necessarily intervene, but to observe and as a result kind of make the Israeli soldiers refrain from doing something they would if there was no one watching them. And so you had a lot of Japanese taking part in the ISM, actually, and, you know, being part of the human shield for the Palestinians. So you have a lot of uh, solidarity in the the form of grassroots, which, as I said, started in mid to end of 80s and still going on and growing, actually. The problem is that even though Japan also as a government funded a few things in Palestine, like a school for blind children and things like that, the problem is whenever these facilities get bombed by Israel, other countries would complain against Israel, against such an aggression and to their, if you want, taxpayers' money's investment. The Japanese government, unfortunately, does not do that. And when Israel attacked Palestine, it hit one of those facilities that was, or schools that was made for the blind children in Gaza. And 
the Japanese government did not complain, did not do anything. And the reason why complaining is important is because when you complain, you kind of pressure Israel not to hit, of course, it shouldn't attack people in any case, but you know, when you have this kind of international community criticism and complaint and you know asking for refund or something like that, then they would think twice about harming this kind of vital infrastructure because Japan uh, Israel is always known to attack infrastructure and you know vital social and economic places in Gaza. So it's a kind of deterrent for them not to be attacked. But the Japanese government did not do any kind of complaints after this. So yes, this, these are the kinds of solidarity, I guess, that are still ongoing between Japan and Palestine. I'm sure there are a lot more, but I, I must have missed a lot of other things. But these are the things that I could think of. There were also protests against the recent round of Israeli aggression back in May in multiple Japanese cities, including two in Tokyo. One of them was organized by a Turkish mosque and attended by Arab participants, which indicates that it's not only ethnic Japanese people that are in solidarity with Palestine, but also immigrant and migrant communities inside Japan. And you have the boycott movement, which is、uh, you know, trying to educate the Japanese public about what they're purchasing and where their products are coming from, and trying to pressure department stores and shops to stop selling products that are cooperating with Israel or investing in Israel. Let's talk about the representation of Palestine by the mainstream media, in particular, the Japanese media. Do you think your role as a journalist and media worker helped promote the Palestinian cause? What is the state of media representation of Palestine in Japan today? Well, I hope I, I managed to kind of change the understanding of the Palestinians in Japan and the normal public, because we know the activists are informing themselves with an extra effort through you know, communications and With people or internet, but it's normal public that we want to have more information about what's going on in Palestine. And、uh, yeah, I mean, ever since I went back to Japan, I was given the chance to speak in many media outlets, even before working as a journalist or as a, a TV host. So every time I was given the chance, because The media was actually more interested in, about my relationship with my mother at first. But every time I was interviewed for that cause or for that reason, I would also always mention what the Palestinian cause was and why it was a, it's a human cause. It's not about an Arab or an Islam, or it's not about just the Middle East. It's about human beings. We should not allow such things to happen as human beings. And I would give more examples, visible examples, you know, examples that you can visualize when I talk about the children throwing stones, when I talk about what happens to a Palestinian family suddenly in the middle of the night when they're asleep at home. You know, these kinds of things, when you talk about them and you have a, a Japanese person talking about them who have, in a way, kind of experienced the wars in the Middle East. 
I think it was a little bit more different in presenting the information than just broadcasting some event about Palestine in the news in like a few seconds. So yes, and then when I was a TV host, I was a co-host. Uh, I gave a few. I was. I had a few chances of mentioning what's going on in the Middle East, and so I hope that more people were aware about the Palestinian issue and the occupation and what's really the problem in this occupation and the apartheid state. But the media in general, if I'm talking about the mainstream media, is always concerned about giving the quote-unquote both sides story. So if you find a Japanese media talking about some kind of, let's say, Israeli attack on Gaza, it will always make sure that it will talk about why Israel is hitting Gaza before that. You know, it's just like kind of giving it an excuse for, let's say, bombing Gaza or assassinating a leader, or demolishing a home, or bombing a, a whole building. You know, every time there is some kind of news about Israel's aggression, it has to be followed or preceded by the reasoning why Israel is doing that. And that is what I actually found to be, in a way, when you are standing with an aggressor, or if you're trying to be objective when you have an aggressor and an aggressed, you're not actually being objective. You're taking sides with the wrong, with the, with the powerful, actually. It's more objective or more, anyway, I don't believe journalism can be objective, even if it tries to be. Because just the simple fact of choosing the topic, this, this is a subjective matter, you know, choosing a topic, choosing your talking heads, Choosing your your the the way you use your vocabulary to describe what you're saying or what the incident and of course the chronology of describing the things that are happening all these are subjective so you can't really be one hundred percent objective in journalism and so this is what I see in Japanese journalism it's always trying to be on the quote-unquote safe side with Israel when trying to report on Israel, Israeli aggression on the Palestinians. The problem, I think, with, with the Japanese uh, way of covering the Middle East is primarily the language. Because most journalists are sent off to the Middle East because they're good at English, but they're not necessarily fluent in Arabic. So when you are communicating, yes, we have a lot of English speakers in this region, but when you're limiting your communications in English, A, you have to rely on a coordinator slash fixer to tell you what's going on. This is one. Two, you cannot read the local news unless you have certain specific articles translated for you each time. And of course, the local television and the radio. And so you miss a lot of information that could be giving you a different perspective of what's going on in the region. So I think the language barrier is huge for a comprehensive understanding. You have a very few people who can speak Arabic 
there was a journalist who works, I think for, I think if I'm not mistaken for Nihon Shimbun. Yeah. So there was a, a person who was based in Cairo. I, I can't remember the name, but this, this journalist spoke Arabic. So she was capable of gathering plenty of information to make her assessment and analysis, which sounded more comprehensive than if you just have very talented and skillful journalists that are good in English, but there is a barrier for them with the Arabic language. For sure. I mean, like the, the, not everything is spoken in English, you know? Yeah. This, I mean, if you're in the, the in the Middle East, yes, you do find English newspapers and English-speaking people. But don't forget that these people have an uh, opinion or they have a certain spin to the information or a certain, let's say, angle to the information. But if you can speak to everyone and check out whichever media you want to choose, read whichever article you feel like reading, it makes a whole lot of difference of understanding the situation. Despite the violent colonial oppression Palestinians have faced at the hands of colonial powers, and since the creation of Israel in 1948, Palestinians are still here, courageously resisting and fighting for their liberation. What do you think is a solution to the so-called question of Palestine? Do you think we will see a single democratic state in Palestine one day? Well, I should hope so. I should, as a person who supports uh, the freedom of Palestine, of course, I should always hope that there would be a democratic state at the end of all this for Palestine. And... Um, Personally, I'm like Edward Said. I believe that, you know, by now we should have one state solution. It's obviously impossible to have a two state solution with this geographical situation that Israel has put the Palestinians in. They left the Palestinians with small islands inside the West Bank area and then a small Gaza strip that is completely separated from the West Bank. And these tiny land islands that are presumably for the Palestinian Authority to rule are interlinked with roads that are controlled by the Israelis and intertwining. And inside these or between these territories, you have massive settlements, Israeli settlements. So it's almost impossible to achieve a land continuity to create a state of Palestine in this situation. So. To me, I don't see a two-state situation, a two-state solution viable anymore. And possibly a one-state solution is the best solution. But for this to happen, you have to have a willing Israeli government to actually amend their constitution, actually accept the Palestinians or non-Jewish Israelis, let's say also, and the Palestinians as an equal, and to have a real democratic state, not the propagated democratic, only democratic state in the Middle East, which Israel claims to be, because it's not. And of course, after all this massacres and the killing of the Palestinians, it's going to be tough even for the Palestinians to accept this, 
But to achieve the real, you know, right of return for the Palestinians, for a person from Haifa to return to Haifa, for a person from uh, Yaffa to return to Yaffa, not to Gaza because he, he is alien to Gaza. He does not know Gaza. And a person from Haifa who is a refugee in Lebanon now won't be returning if he is sent to Gaza or I don't know, Ramallah or whatever other region. So the only place, the only logic in the right of return is when everyone is allowed to return, not just the Jewish law. You know, you have a law in, in Israel, the right of return, which is for the Israelis. And it is for any Jewish person around the world who has never set foot on occupied Palestine or historic Palestine, Israel slash Israel, they can have the right to get an Israeli nationality, a loan for housing and to live and a starting year kind of funding and all sorts of support for these people, for Jewish people to come and live in historic Palestine slash Israel. But Palestinians who have actually been there and generations that are still living, you know, I'm not talking about thousands of years ago. I'm not, I'm talking about tens of years ago. These people are left outside, stranded, discriminated in the host country because they're not allowed to go back to their homes. So a solution for this also is a one state solution where everyone can try at least to live together in a democratic and a real democratic state. Uh, where everyone is treated equal, no superiority, no benefit for one religion over the other. You know, all these things should go away in a democratic state. Yes, absolutely. And um, international solidarity is really vital to this process. As much as, much as the the movement of Palestinians themselves and their expression of sovereignty and you know that the right to resist, to defend their lives and nationhood by any means necessary. And I think your mother is really a role model of that solidarity. You know, it really took a lot of sacrifice for her to go there, have her boots on the ground. And, you know, she sacrificed a career and everything else that she could pursue. And I Think of her uh, on par with Norman Bethune. I don't know if you know him, but he was a Canadian doctor who traveled to Spain, helped out with the Civil War, the Republicans. And after that, he went to China and helped with the Chinese revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. The Chinese people resist Japanese imperialism and fascism. And he died there. He's almost unknown in Canada, but he's, he's like a hero in China. He's taught in schools, but I think oh. your mother should be <laughs> taught in Japanese schools. Or, you know, there's a, I hear there's a resurgence of like a, a people in Germany like, like recognizing, you know, the Ulrike Meinhofs being in Red Army factions being recognized among German youth. But I think there's still a long way to go for Shigeno Sako yeah. in Japan. So yeah, yeah, and you know she's uh, she's gonna be free next year. So I hope she gets to tell her story as well. Yeah, I hope so too, because I mean, like, she'll have been, have been in prison by the time she's released 22 years and a half. And uh, yes, she could sometimes communicate with, through letters with the outside world, but uh, 
it would be different when she comes out and she actually speaks to the people, you know, she meets and talks to the media perhaps. But the problem is, I think, you know, it's very difficult to change the image after there's been 40 years of media character creation. Don't forget that, you know, all these years where we didn't have any internet access or we didn't have any social media. So from the 60s, end of 60s until the 2000s, you had the narrative of the mainstream media and the mainstream media is behind them. You have the government or you have the loyalists of the government. So you have the media that's been always spewing narratives of the governments and not of the people or of the minorities or the the weak. So it's a good thing that we have now more access to information and we have communication that is more free between people. But it's difficult to correct an image that's been so hard created and entrenched in the, the Japanese psyche for such a long time as that she's, a, she's just a terrorist and a bloodthirsty terrorist that uh, for some reason went to to the Middle East and she's a communist on top of that because, you know, Japan does have a kind of a sensitivity today to communism and the Japanese government has always been working on anti-communism propaganda or, or information. So yeah, you, she will have a tough work waiting on her to, to try to correct that image, but at least she can try to do so. And you have the, today we have all sorts of other information sources like your podcast, social media, alternative medias that are willing to give out information that the mainstream media is not willing to embark on or tackle. That the, the stories of the people who did not have a platform to, to tell their, to talk about their cause and the reasons for their cause. But yeah, I mean, we, it's a good thing we have this now today. And I'm sure that if this kind of tool was available to, let's say, the leftists and the activists in the 60s and the 70s, we would have a different world today. We would have a much more informed world today, and we would at least might not have that many wars going around in the world. And probably all these military struggles did not have to be military for example, the Palestinian struggle or the Japanese Red Army, they might have not necessarily needed to use the military force if they had a platform to talk and spread the information about certain humanitarian causes. Yeah, and thank you for your earlier comment about my podcast. It's raw, and it really, I agree that um, our role is to really to, to support the struggle and high right uh, voices and points of view that are not included or deliberately silenced from the the mainstream media, but most of all to to support the struggles of the oppressed and exploited for their liberation. So, thank you for that. No, thank you. It's it's your effort. Yeah, it is. Uh, our role is to uh, to paraphrase Marx 
it is important to educate educators themselves. That is to say, those in the media, media workers, like literally exactly. authors, right? Like, yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, for example, if I could just point out something here, I mean, because of this, I mean, we have had social media for almost, say, we're 10 years. No, more than 10 years. I think about 15 years, you know, the start of social media. But this, it took us 15 years, but I think it's a kind of a, a turning point for us in the media, for example, because as I might have mentioned before, we had a lot of set information that's like already considered to be a fact in the information world. But these are actually not cross-checked they're not scrutinized they're just taken as is as if this is a you know like a confirmed information but then when you have the social media actively trying to you know on an individual level like for example what you saw in Palestine and Sheikh Jarrah on an individual level people are becoming the reporters let's first put it this way so people are reporting on what they see what what's going on with them and then you have the journalists who are picking up on these different kind of information, that the information that they're not used to, but are viable. And as a result, for example, with the, with the attacks on Gaza at the end of it, you had several journalists, you know, demanding that their media outlet report more evenly or more justly for the Palestinians because of the terminologies they try to use or if they send a report it would be completely edited out to be more soft and acceptable as usual you had uh, the ap journalist who was fired for writing in a more you know pro-palestine kind of report because of what she was seeing on the ground you have for example the google staff who wrote against google's trying to limit all the information on palestine and this was interesting because it was the Jewish community in Google that were against what's going on in Google, how biased Google was in the information it provided with Israel. And you had uh, people in Amazon and Apple staff. So you have a lot of people being now consciously trying to rearrange and recalibrate their information that they've already had before about, let's say, the Middle East and maybe about other countries. Because of social media, they have now the chance to correct whatever a priori kind of information they had and re-understand and also vocally demand that things change in their atmosphere at least. And this is a good change, I think. It's a start, but it's a good change that now the mainstream media do not rule the information. They don't rule the information world. They're only part of the information world, but they have to play by the rules of the real information because people cannot unsee what they see on social media. Whatever the, the mainstream media might want to tell them, if social media shows them something not told by the mainstream media, they cannot unsee it, like what happened in Gaza. Yeah, definitely. I'm a little bit cautious like to not give too much credit to social media. It is <laughs> yes. it is a people. Populist. 
populism. Yeah. Yes, I know. I get it. But if it, if there is two, always two sides to any new technology and any new kind of uh, revolution in the media world. There's always two sides to it. But, you know, you have to always kind of try to enhance the good side and try to correct the, the bad influence that it might have. Yeah, definitely. It is a, a, it's a valuable tool and it is people who make up the media and who use that media and maximize, like, to utilize it to its best of the abilities to educate themselves and others, to build a movement and change the world. So yeah, we do have a, this great chance to, yes. uh, to advance that cause for sure. Yeah, I think um, this uh, is a great conclusion for our interview. Thank you so much for your time. Glad that we finally able to to um, finish it up. Before you go, can you tell listeners uh, where they can find your work? So yeah, I am. So we we just started a kind of a YouTube channel. It's called Asian Progressive, and uh, try to talk about all sorts of international issues from a more progressive point of view. And I try to, whatever information I obtain from this part of the world or from other places, I, I like to share it with my followers on Twitter mostly or um, on my Facebook official page. Sometimes I write articles, but it's um, uh, right now I'm kind of working for uh, Al Mayadeen online. So you might find my articles there sometimes. And you're on Twitter too, correct? Yes, on my Twitter uh, handle, May Shigenobu. Great. Thank you so much again, uh, May, for coming onto the show. Thank you very much for hosting this show and for bringing more information, more hidden kind of information, information that needs to be out in the world and discussions and arguments and discourses that need to be more... Uh, heard and uh, exposed to the public. Yeah. Me dijeron que los hombres no lloran. Entonces les dije que quería ser niño. Porque son lágrimas las horas. Que se inmolan contra el asfalto oprimido Cualquier día se nos lleva un cáncer Hoy solo te pido que fuerte me abraces Hay más estímulos negativos que positivos Hicieron que vivir parezca un castigo Cuánto los odio por ello y aún así Me quedo corto, no lo soporto por escribir Hace mucho que el cuaderno no me calma Mis mejores cartuchos aún no se disparan Esperando el momento más oportuno Ganas de reventarlos a diario desayuno Ya no me ciega el humo, busco algo sólido Estas calles no se merecen mi vómito La impaciencia me dice pierde el control No puedo traicionar a quien en mí confió No puedo traicionarme, me cansé de hacerlo Cuánto duele el cerebro pensando en tu hielo Aquí el talento no es salida sino lames culos si la realidad incómoda no censuro 
Haría tragar al presidente cada factura pendiente Cuando todo reviente sabrán lo que es duro La ciudad me escupe demasiados recuerdos Cada vez son más de lucha y me pillan sonriendo Se acabó tirar días a la basura Qué lástima quienes no lo respetan e insultan Yo a lo mío, que sigan su camino Apuesto a que yo me sentiré menos vacío Puede que a veces sea más aburrido Pero me miro en el espejo y ya no me maldigo Estoy bebiendo cacao late evitando el ron O me empezaba a centrar o no tardaba la dios La tontería terminó, esto es serio Colocado y tirado no se derrota un imperio Nos vendieron mierda a precio de oro Mira como rabian gusanos cuando mejoro Deberían mejorar, dejarse de memeces, pero para eso hacen falta gallas y carecen. Bien adultos que me rodeaban lo que no quería ser, escalofríos cuando el vacío se llevó a mi niñez. La imaginación ya no fue refugio, prueba de tormentas, y desde entonces siempre truena en mi cabeza. La abuela ya no reza por mí, me da por perdido, precisamente cuando más me he encontrado. Avanzo entre suspiros, lo pagarán caro. Si me alejan de lo que amo, me lo he prometido. Donde tú ves una fiesta eterna, yo veo los ríos de sangre inocente que inundan el planeta. En mi tumba se masturba quien espera mi fin, pero las ideas que defiendo nunca van a morir. Baja de la nube hippie que toca en asfalto tus pies. Sé lo que es el estrés por no llegar a mitad de mes. Desesperado por cambiarlo, como Fusako, Shigenobu y el ejército rojo japonés.